0: Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Drake, and thank you for tuning in. Sorry for the delay. I am officially now a PhD candidate. I, My other co-host who's been busy looking after his newborn baby is also a PhD candidate. Things are moving at an alarming rate and we cannot catch up quick enough. So I'm sorry that I had to delay this for another week. I also moved places, uh, moved in with my girlfriend, And it was a hectic move as well. So all things considered, I'm super excited for you to listen to this episode. This was an awesome conversation that I had with uh, returning guest Ashley Randall and Gabe Leon, who did amazing work on a massive, massive study looking at couples during COVID. So we're reversing a bit going back to the first few months of COVID when they hopped on the opportunity to look at Multiple countries uh, and how couples are managing their stress and how they're coping as a couple. So, if you're interested at all in in hearing about how couples communicate and cope with each with with you know a global pandemic that you may have experienced as well, you're gonna enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the episode, and if you ha- if you have any questions or if you have any guests or. Future topics that you want me to cover, please do send us a line at brainbuzzpod at gmail.com or send us on a message on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at brainbuzzpod. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. Uh, We have a returning guest, Dr. Ashley Randall. She's an associate professor at uh, Arizona State University, and she has her co-author and colleague, Gabe Leod, who is a PhD in clinical science at USC. Welcome onto the show, Ashley and Gabe. I'm really looking forward to talking about your new paper uh, that's about coping and managing stress during COVID.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having
2: us. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's nice being here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I contacted Ashley immediately as soon as I saw this update and I saw this paper come out because I've been dying to see how relationships are changing and what's happening during COVID. Um, I knew a bunch of researchers would be working on it as soon as COVID started. I know a lot of labs around in Canada are doing it worldwide. Everybody kind of shifted towards looking at how COVID's impacting their line of work. And we had Ashley on talking about how couples manage stress and how they cope with stress. Uh, and they did exactly what I wanted them to do uh, and look at a massive data set of over 14,000 participants across 27 countries uh, and looked at how COVID-19 was impacting couples. So first off, holy crap, how do you coordinate that? Uh, and then second of all, give me a little bit of an intro of what we're going to be talking about, about today and what you guys found.
1: Yeah, you got it. So let, let me actually give you um, a backstory uh, in terms of how this project happened. So, I was actually on sabbatical um in the spring of 2020 <clears throat> and had the chance to visit um some friends and colleagues in Italy and and so was actually came back to the states on March 7th of, so for those of you that are listening from the U.S. we know that everything kind of shut down around March 8th um <laughs> so so thankfully I got back to the U.S. although I often uh, joke that it may not necessarily would have been that bad to be stuck in Italy um although during COVID you know all things considered so <clears throat> came back and I was talking um, with my friend and colleague, uh, Claudia Ciarolanza, who is also a co-author on the paper at Sapienza University of Rome. We were chatting about, you know, the um, unfortunate situation that was going on in Italy. And she's like, I think we should do a research study. And I was like, yeah, that's great. No, no, I'm good. Sabbatical, I've got to like cut down. And so, you know, I thought about it for about 0.2 seconds and I thought, okay, yep, that sounds great. Like, how can I help you? Totally happy to, to help pull things together. And then, you know, we started talking. And so I would say in the span of maybe 48, 72 hours, we had gone from let's not do a study. Let's do a study in Italy. Let's do a study comparing Italy and the US. And I'm like, no, let's like totally like go all out. Like let's um, connect with amazing collaborators around the world to see uh, whom it is that we can get participate. And um, that was kind of the launch of the study, um, which we started, started pulling together. And I'm happy to go into the details, of course, of how do we coordinate all this, which is very carefully and through amazing like google docs dropbox <laughs> lots of emails um which i'm sure my email address is probably blocked from some of our collaborators by <laughs> the amount of time i've emailed um <clears throat> and so we started data collection uh roughly in the summer um or rather uh around april gave remember it was march
2: march 2020.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay. Great. So we even yeah. Right after a
0: quick turnaround. Holy smokes.
1: Yeah. So March 2020, and then we ended data collection in July of 2020 because we were trying to get you know a good um, snapshot of what was going on. Similarly, um, although COVID rates were fluctuating for these countries.
0: First off, let's. I. It's a lot of countries. You have 27 countries on the list. So. Could you give us an idea of how you picked these countries, what countries they were? If you have a list of them like, yes. or, or like what what was what was that process of picking which countries?
1: Sure. You got it. So one, I, I do have a list. I'm going to open up the word <laughs> document, but, um, I'm halfway through my memorization of them.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but really, I've uh, been fortunate um, due to like, various international experiences and due to a Fulbright that I had completed to really have uh, some international reach. And had been, um, you know, had the opportunity to collaborate with some of these individuals on prior publications. And so, really reached out to them mm-hmm. um, to see hey, I recognize that this is a really tumultuous time that we're all going through and really unprecedented. I'm sure that the last thing you'd want to do is participate and kind of collaborate on a study. What do you think? And um, surprisingly, it was an overwhelming positive response. And I would say that throughout our entire collaboration and working on this, a number of colleagues, myself um, and Gabe included, recognized that you know, this is something that really allowed us to feel connected to one another in such a difficult time. And that we, it was almost exciting to wake up every morning to see, you know, what new countries and what new collaborators um, agreed to participate, how it is that we were going to pull this together and really work through some of the difficult times as all of us were transitioning online and whatnot. Um, And so uh, that was, you know, really helpful. And I do want to acknowledge two other amazing um, student collaborators that were on the project. So, Lauren Hawker and Kai Klein, Kai, who was actually on um, an mm-hmm. earlier podcast, and so they were instrumental as well in terms of getting this up and running. Yeah. So, now let me take a, a quick breather as I read through the <laughs> list of countries that we have here. Um, and so, in terms of North America and Western Europe, we had um, Austria. And these are um, colleagues who are representative of the country. And so, and we can talk about this just in terms of recognizing that while we had individuals from these countries participating, that we, you know, we, we can't necessarily generalize like everything that was going on in that country because these right. were specific in terms of recruitment. Mm-hmm. So North America and Western Europe, we had Austria, Belgium, Canada, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, Switzerland, the UK, and then the U S in Eastern Europe. We had Hungary and Romania in Asia. We had Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, Pakistan, South Korea, and Turkey. From the Middle East, we had Israel. And from Africa, we had Ghana. And then, I promise we're almost finished. Uh, Middle and South America, we had Brazil and Chile. And in Oceania, we had Australia. And so, um, yeah, quite um, a wide range. We certainly um, had reached out to other colleagues, however, due to you know their circumstances were unable to participate. Um, and right. really this research would not have been possible without funding from the American Psychological Association and in particular the Office of International Affairs. Um, so speaking of kind of like the workings of the study is uh, reached out to the Office of International Affairs with this project and they were um, kind to, to offer some funding. And, and really the funding went to compensating participants In uh, traditionally underrepresented countries and so we were able to offer the equivalent of like Amazon gift cards or um, some countries like Ghana in particular had asked for um, cell phone minutes or cell phone pings and so we were able to compensate um, in that regard.
0: That's a cool little perspective of like how to incentivize participants because you know from North America we usually use gift cards for like Amazon Chapters or Starbucks right that's not going to go the extra mile for everybody. You're right. right.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool perspective. And so you know, 27 countries—that's insane just from the scope of it and the fact that you probably could have had more too. Um, with that. I'm sure when it comes down to the actual facilitating the surveys, they're not all in English, right? So there's going to be a lot of translations here. That must have been a massive undertaking as well. What were you asking whenever you guys created the survey? What was the goal of the survey? What was your research questions? What were you trying to figure out what was going on at that time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, one of the things that we predominantly study uh, in the lab is how do we cope with stress in the context of our relationships? And so it's really taking the outside of an individual perspective, but recognizing that we're social beings, right? We interact with our romantic partners, with family members, siblings, uh, friends. And so really in this time of unprecedented stress, um, a really a huge time of uncertainty, this really laid the groundwork for us, us meaning relationship scientists broadly defined, and certainly other scientists as well, to test the traditional theories that we have about relationship maintenance um, and how it is that we can mitigate some of these stressful experiences. And so really this, I mean, this laid the groundwork of um, predominantly looking at how partners cope with stress in the context of their relationship. And we thought, well, here's an opportunity that's really um, an ecologically like leveled stress, right? This is something that everyone is experiencing across the world to varying degrees, of course. Um, however it really presented a unique opportunity to say irrespective of individual differences and what may be going on here's a stressor that's really impacting everyone and how can we maybe apply some of the existing techniques and um, understanding the the stress behaviors that may mitigate these experiences and normative contexts to to really understand it how it was applied in in COVID.
0: Yeah yeah. So, so when it comes down to you know you think to yourself as a researcher, Ashley, you're like, okay, we want to measure people during COVID and we want to measure how they're coping with stress and all these other things that, that, you know, the literature has shown us happens when people are stressed, mm-hmm. what questions or what specific things do you ask? And what did you ask? I guess, in this study that you're reporting on for psychological distress, like what, how do you measure psychological distress? Uh, and, and what type of, uh, questions are you asking when it comes to how are you coping with the stress with your partner?
1: Yeah. Excellent question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Gabe comment on this just um, mm-hmm. in a quick second, but I did want to comment really quickly in terms of the translation, because you were absolutely right that we did not administer and we have to be mindful, right? That the um, measures that we use have been translated and validated in the specific uh, language and cultural context to which we are using. So um, mm-hmm. that process was really held um, by our, like, you know, the co-PIs um, are the principal investigators of each country's team so in the case where they had the validated measures um, that we were looking at and, and I'll let Gabe uh, mention those so I'll let you all on your seats for just a quick second. Um, so as the you know each country's PI was you know finding those measures and to ensure that they were validated sometimes they didn't exist and so uh, each country then went through, Um, And you can imagine right in terms of how time intensive this was and then also how quickly everyone was trying to have this roll out to really take the necessary steps to translate and then back to translate uh, to have those assessments.
0: You know, yeah, a lot of a lot of work for sure. It's not just putting into Google Translate and then backwards reversing of context in it.
1: Yes. And, and I wish I spoke another language so I could have been of help. But that was that was not, not an area that I was helping out. But Gabe, do you want to um, tell everyone about the measures that we looked at in the study and kind of what it is that we were um, assessing?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think specifically to the question of what we're what kind of stress or distress were we measuring, right? Yeah. So the measure we used was the DAS21, which is the Depression, Anxiety, and Stress Scale. Uh, it's 21 measures. Um, did we just use the stress subscale or do we use all of them? Do you remember?
1: Everything.
2: Everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. we
1: so plopped it to a total scale.
2: Right. So in that sense, we're measuring kind of this aggregate measure of psychological distress, right? Across these three subscales. Um, you asked about some of the questions. Um, here's some of the questions in English. And like I said, like Dr. Randall was saying, like through translation, like we want to make sure that we're measuring the same thing across languages. Right. So that's a process in and of itself. Um, but some of the questions is like, you know, I find it hard uh, to wind down. Uh, I'm aware, I'm experiencing mouth dryness. Uh, I couldn't seem to experience any positive feeling at all. Right. So some of these are tapping into more of anxiety. Some are tapping into depression. Um, do you find yourself getting easily agitated? Do you find it hard to relax? Um, do you feel uh, that you aren't you're worth much as a person, right? So mm. we're trying to catch these different dimensions of psychological distress in a measure like this. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was our primary measure of interest.
0: Right. And, and as you said, Gabe, like with that, when you're looking at the global kind of you're mixing together, aggregating uh, anxiety, depression and stress, right? So a lot of feelings that you would expect someone to feel between the time point that you guys were looking at, which was March to April 2020. Is that correct? March to July, I believe. Yeah. So here, here's
1: July. how it went out. So is that like, we actually, um, you know, assess this measure. Uh, we asked participants to complete the measure twice. So okay. the one date um, that we had included, so for example, in the U S it was prior to the uh, country level restrictions going into place like on March 10th. And mm-hmm. so we asked participants to reflect, okay, prior to whatever country level restrictions are going on, what were your you know reported symptoms and now post this what are you experiencing? Yeah. And that way at least just as a from a cross-sectional perspective, we could then you know take the different score to say or really, you know, control for that to say irrespective of how people were feeling prior to the pandemic here are some of these levels of distress that they're experiencing now that the restrictions are in place.
0: Right. And that makes a lot of sense for, um, you know, getting that baseline measure. And obviously, it's not perfect because you couldn't have predicted that COVID was going to be happening. Right. But like getting it as early as possible, trying to get them to reflect, you know, last month or a few weeks ago, how are things going? And then getting it you know, a few months later when it's kind of in the full swing of covid. Right. I'm trying to remember and I don't know if any of you uh, have any like stories or anything to remind us what it really was like at the beginning of that. It feels like it's been four years. I know it's been about you know a year and a half now, um, but like remembering what it was like at the peak of um, you know restrictions being in place and covid really kind of taking the world by storm you have to really put yourself in that situation and remember what was going on with you and your partner. If you have a partner and you live with your partner. So what, did, what was it like? Do you guys, can you guys just kind of remind us what it was like? Cause I feel like this is a new normal now that we've just kind of accepted. Right. Uh, but like we were, we were really stressed at that time.
2: <sighs> I think what was most, uh, I guess, poignant at that time was the uncertainty, right? Like we didn't know exactly where we would be in the next month, two months. I think, We kind of get accustomed to life and this goes for our relationships right we just habituate to yeah you know there's some stability i know what tomorrow's going to be like i know what next week is going to be like but with something like a global pandemic all of that certainty goes out the window right and so in one sense that could put a lot of strain on our relationships but you know and in another way our relationships can help us cope with that right and that's one of the things we ended up looking at um but that was just one thing that stuck out for me is the uncertainty what about you ashley
1: yeah, I mean, I would say it's like the fluctuation, right? Because it's like we all went through days and we're like, woohoo, like I get to watch another Netflix episode or at least like in our house, it was like, all right, dance party again, right? So probably horrible music that my partner was not happy that I continually played. Um, aside though, right? Like there were days when it was like, this is great and we get to spend more time together. And then there were days where, you know, as, as an academic work really never stops. And so, you know, I still had things to, to keep it going, in, in particular, this study, Whereas my partner, you know, it was work kind of shut down and it was okay, now, now what's going to happen and, and what's going to happen when I can return to work? And so, certainly, recognizing that um, I would say um, both like Gabe and I were in very like privileged positions, right? In yeah. terms of the amount of responsibilities that we had outside of our lives. But, you know, for families where they had young children at home and trying to then figure out what's going to happen with school and how, how is one going to, you know, deal with multiple jobs or being laid off and, and such. And so I think that there was certainly a lot of variation in terms of what we experienced then and likely what families are still experiencing now as an aftermath.
0: I, now I'm get, kind of getting those like pings in my heart from remembering what was going on with me uh, between March and July. So, I mean, great time to sample people, great time to ask these questions and really figure out, you know, was this stress, you know, at an evol- like a, a huge stress that might impact us later on down the line. Right. And, you know, a lot of people talk about epigenetics uh, and how, you know, stress can impact you late, like your ge- future generations. It, and I'm people are thinking like this might be one of those li- like lifetime stressors that really impacts people. And I could see that being the case, possibly mm-hmm. with your work, with what you guys studied, you guys looked at specifically with uh, within coping. You look at dyadic coping, right? Yeah. So so what for our viewers that aren't familiar with coping? I'm, I'm quite familiar with because it it's like exclusively the, the things that I look at on a daily basis Important <laughs> diet coping. Um, so you're preaching to the choir on my end, but a lot of people don't really know how we operationalize dyadic coping. So what is dyadic coping uh, and how does it differ than regular coping?
1: Yeah. Well, um, Gabe, I'm gonna I'll, I'll take a quick stab at this, and then if you want to um, hop in, if I miss anything, please um, feel free. A
0: quick stab. This
2: is your thing. This is exactly. like center stage. <laughs> yeah.
1: Very kind. Very kind. Um, so when we think about ourselves, again, we, we're in systems, right? So we are members of uh, potentially a partnership. We're members of a family, etc. And so it's recognizing that our experiences are really uniquely linked with our close others. And in particular, you know, we, we study one's romantic partner. So we have what we call this shared interdependence, right? So our cognitions or how we think about things, our emotions are really linked with our partner. And that is not necessarily um, excluding the idea of how it is that we experience stress. And so even though we're maybe experiencing stress that don't impact our partner, so these are things right outside of our relationship. So our partner can be annoying, right? As you you mentioned. exclude it because this is being recorded. So, um, yeah. So, so in this context, right, these are all internal stressors to our relationship. Annoying habits, differing goals that we may have. But there are things outside of our relationship that really impact us that we bring home. Whether and how we communicate that, either verbally or non-verbally, that's impacting our relationship. So that right there really sets the stage for how we think about how stress can be a relational construct. So how it can really spill over into our relationship and cause that stress. And so really predicated on that is the notion then, well, we, meaning, you know, one's partner um, and themselves are really an interdependent unit. So how can we cope together with this stress? And I like to think about this as uh, really like an implicit or kind of a unconscious set of armor that one wears into the world. It's like not only themselves, but they also have their partner to help them cope. Mm. Now, a caveat to this before I turn it over to Gabe to, to add anything that he would like. Um, is that there are both positive and negative forms of coping. Um, we try to uh, really uh, help people have, you know, healthy and flourishing relationships. And so we focus a large portion in the lab in terms of how do we amplify those positive behaviors, which, which we can further talk about. But Gabe, anything that you wanted to add about dyadic coping, you know, kind of cons- conceptualizing that in the context of relationships?
2: Yeah, I think you make a good point about highlighting the positive and negative ways Um that couples can try to cope with stress, right? I think it's one thing to acknowledge. Um, And I think a metaphor is helpful too. Like you mentioned, romantic partners, like they're a diet, they're a system, right? And uh, they're interrelated. And whenever they experience stress or one partner brings home stress from work or the pandemic, anything really, um, they manage that stress. And it's almost like a, it's a regulatory thing, right? Homeostasis. So almost like when you get hot, right? You start to sweat, right? Your body's trying to cool, yourself down it's the same thing right there's these mechanisms there's these ways of coping that develop in a relationship and it helps people to bring their stress down to a baseline right that's a, a very adaptive way that dietic coping can happen um uh, yeah that's pretty much it
0: yeah i i think it's i think it's a really good uh good analogy to use i think we look at coping when people hear coping often Uh, their first inclination is what they do on their own. Uh, And I I know a lot of literature has done that. has looked at that as well. Right. But the beauty of dyadic coping is that really the coping strategies that you use on your own will impact your partner in some way, too. Right. So, you know, if you choose to drink and ignore all your your uh, your problems and stresses, that might be adaptive for a short period for you, but it may be making things worse in the relationship. May maybe your communications worsening, and it's going to impact your your relationship in some way, right? Or if you're you know actively choosing to do uh, negative types of coping per se, where you're criticizing your partner and it makes you feel better, great for you. Not so great for your partner, right? And probably not so
1: great for you later on. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes, exactly, right? It it might seem adaptive for you at the moment, but long-term effects might be worse. Right. Uh, So I think that's really cool, and that's why I love dyadic coping. I love the work that you do, Ashley and and Gabe. This I think it's it's a really cool approach to look at how couples are managing it because they're kind of forced. If they weren't doing a lot of dyadic coping, they're kind of forced to now because they're in close proximity for so long and they're not really able to get out, right? So dietic coping, even if they weren't doing it effectively before, they're going to be using some form negative or positive of that dyadic coping during this stressful period in their lives, right? Right.
1: Absolutely. And I would say that the really like the, the caveat, right, to dyadic coping, and, and we can demystify what this means um, and how it is that it really operates in the context of relationships, is that we know like from John Gottman's work, right, upwards of 93% of communication is nonverbal. And so if you think about this, so in the context that you gave, right, a partner is like, I'm going to have a drink. I'm just going to watch Netflix. I'm going to, you know, put on my headphones. The important thing to remember is that one cannot not communicate. So in that context, a partner is communicating something to their partner. Like, I need to shut down. I don't want to talk to you, whatever it may be. And really why dyadic coping is so important and has shown such beneficial effects, not only for an individual, but for the relationship is that it's predicated on the notion that partners will verbally communicate what is going on. How is this while it's a stressor that we all may be experiencing? It's important to get at what is about that stressor that's personally yeah. meaningful for the relationship.
0: Yeah. Or for absolutely. the person and the relationship. Actually, I think I think it's a really good point. I wanna I wanna like kind of like throw out some dyadic not necessarily dyadic, but like coping strategies a lot of people used, especially near the beginning of COVID. I know. This is all anecdotal, all from friends and family, obviously. But I'm sure a lot of people can share the same sentiments. Some people either got really into the gym or they got really into eating food and drinking or they started watching a lot more TV or they started going outdoors more. There's there's a million different options. I got into plants. Like people, people started, you, you know, getting more into pets. They bought a lot of COVID pets. Um, there's a lot of things that people were doing. Uh, and everybody can see where they kind of balance on those scales. And really, those were coping strategies to manage this stress, right? But I really do like the like the mention of these nonverbal communications that are going on with couples. And I want to use that kind of example of you know some people that started drinking more, having a couple more bottles of wine throughout the week to cope with that stress. You may not be hearing it from your partner that oh hey maybe you should stop drinking so much, but you might get a small glance you know when you're going to the fridge to get a second cup or something like that or you know a third glass and you see that glance or you see them kind of shut down but they're not saying anything. That kind of communication can do a lot for a relationship and it, and it's definitely noticed uh, by both partners but may not be verbally expressed right. So that's like an example in my mind of exactly what you're talking about how these 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 micro you know not microaggressions but just like these these non-verbal communications can really impact a couple in general
1: totally and with that example really quick i mean it actually reminded me although we didn't um, examine this in this paper but you know the the presence of like any type of substance right so in this context of like getting another glass of wine we know from like family systems literature that this idea of symptom system fit exists and let me break it down so the idea of symptom system fit is that we, there is a symptom of the system. So if you think about partners as a system, what is the symptom that's keeping the relationship going? And so some of the um, work that was done by Michael Rohrbach and Barth- the late Sham had shown that couples that actually smoke together report higher positive affect. So in this context, right, of COVID potentially engaging in what we would consider traditionally uh, maladaptive coping behaviors might have actually Uh, facilitated some of these like relational outcomes, um, at least, you know, momentary, what those mean long term, that's a really good question, especially what that means. then for uh, kind of continuing those behaviors.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you're doing them together, even if they may be typically considered maladaptive, it might actually bring you closer relationally, right? Yeah, I, I can see that for sure. Especially if you think of someone that's, you know, Drinking a lot more, and their partners trying to be more active. You could see how that might not interact as well, right? And they might have some sort of like more conf- conflicts because of those uh, mm-hmm. asymmetries, right? Um, that being said, we've we've defined dyadic coping. We've defined like what was going on. We we all remember now what we were feeling and what we were experiencing uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. So, what did we find across these twenty-seven countries, like? there's i'm sure there's lots to talk about so what were the kind of global trends what did we see across all the countries and what were like these like int- intricate more you know specific differences that you might have found across some certain countries
1: Yeah, I'm going to let Gabe um, talk about the specifics in terms of like kind of how dyadic coping mitigated some of these experiences. However, one thing to note is that we actually have qualitative data. So we're in the process of also writing this up um, where we had participants respond, like what are the stressors that you're experiencing? What do you think the stressors are that your partner is experiencing in your community? And so those by and large were were roughly similar stressors that, um, you know, we see represented in in the literature, you know, worried about one's own health worried about family members getting sick, certainly socioeconomic concerns um, within the US um, and and likely other countries as well, um, instances of xenophobia. And so, you know, we often talk about the um, double uh, racism pandemic that, you know, we continue to experience here in the US um, and other places, as well as really, you know, some of those traumatic, stressful experiences of losing family members um, and loved ones. And so those kind of were, although there were some, you know, within country uh, variability and some specific country differences, I would say by and large, these were large themes that we found that people were experiencing, um, in terms of their stress. And so now I'll turn it over to Gabe for, for the real exciting stuff about now that we, now that we know that people are experiencing these stressors, what, what were they doing and how did their partner potentially help them?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, Gabe, I, I, before you jump in, I just think that's, I want to note, like, it's a really good point that I didn't even consider but there was a lot of differences going on based on what country you're in right there i i think that I could be wrong but like the the George Floyd protests and and that social change that was going on that was occurring like hand in hand with the beginning of the pandemic right 100%, like, yeah. Yeah. like that that is a huge stressor for a lot of people in in, in america specifically but i think across the world there was a lot mm-hmm. of people that were experiencing that as well right so it's kind of you know it's covid but there was a lot of social change a lot of a lot of um a lot of things going on around the world that weren't just COVID related, but could have been really stressing people out depending on what country they're in. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm cool. It's, I'm really interested to hear what the differences were. Yeah, so go ahead, Gabe. Sorry to interrupt.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a good point to acknowledge, right? So a lot of times when we do research, we're looking at these average effects, right? So we have a sample and we're saying, okay, what's the effect we see across everybody? And we really wanted to explicitly Delineate between, okay, how do these effects differ across countries? Because like you said, there's not only different things going on at the time that we're sampling, but also different cultures, right? Um, Different ways of handling stress and responding to stress that we want to account for directly. So that's one thing to acknowledge. Our figures do a lot in showing the different variability across countries that we saw. But in brief, what we found was what we expected, right? So the difference between the stress they experienced before COVID-19 and after uh, it was significant, right So it was that we saw an increase or at least a self-reported increase in psychological distress. Now
0: the other variable
2: that we talked about was dyadic coping, but a third one that we hadn't talked about is perceived relationship quality, right So that was the thing we wanted to know about, right So how what is your perceived uh, relationship quality with your partner right now? How is stress affecting that right? And what we found across countries uh, is that it affected it negatively right as we would expect, right The more stress that you experienced, following the COVID-19 pandemic, it's probably going to affect your relationships negatively. Now, what we were really interested in is what is dyadic coping? How does it do to change that relationship, right? So couples who report a lot of positive dyadic coping, does that buffer that effect? Does it help them to buffer against the negative stress that they may be experiencing? And indeed, we found that, right? So that effect actually dissipates the more people reported engaging in positive dyadic coping with their partner. Conversely, negative dyadic coping, and I'll turn it over to Ashley in a minute to kind of explain those subconstructs more. Uh, negative dyadic coping, the less couples engage in that, the less stress seems to affect their relationship, right? So kind of a takeaway there is positive dyadic coping, as we would expect, helps to buffer against stress. Negative dyadic coping can actually exacerbate it, right? So that's, those are behaviors that the less couples engage with them, the more it builds for their relational functioning so ashley do you want to talk more about the specific behaviors of positive and negative dyadic coping that we were looking at
1: yeah absolutely so in terms of positive dyadic coping we really um kind of collapsed a couple of constructs together to have like one um larger construct of positive coping but what the different forms that we can think about one being emotion focused um so therefore really providing empathy to one's partner so as they are disclosing you know here's what's stressful for me really providing that empathy. Alternatively, there's problem-focused coping where partners can actually help problem solve. You know, have have we tried this together? Like, well, have you thought about doing, you know, X, Y, or Z in in terms of helping um, you feel better? And then there is delegated dyadic. What that is, is asking another partner to maybe do something in order to mitigate, you know, one's experience of stress. So, for example, right, if we take um, a family who's at home um, with little ones and do you mind watching the kids while I have a meeting, you know, so I can get on Zoom or, or whatnot. Or at least in our case, it was can you entertain the animals so they're not barking and. You know running through the, the camera screen um and so those are really like positive aspects right things that help one you know ultimately feel better and kind of uh lessen those degrees of stress alternatively um as gabe was mentioning we we are seeing instances and there you know are elements of negative dyadic coping which is really providing coping which is a little bit of a, a teaser is that like it's providing coping but doing so unwillingly or really being ambivalent about this. So oftentimes these behaviors are um, really reflected both verbally and non-verbally. So you're going to see eye rolls like, Oh, geez, like, you know, this is stressing you out again. Like, okay, fine. I'll listen to you again. Like, you know, what is this? Can't you get over it? Et cetera, et cetera. The the caveat though is really like, right. The the couple is still a system. So there's still something that's going on. And so that's why we also uh, contextualize those negative behaviors.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's important to note though, right? Like, not all interactions that you're going to have with your partner that may be like oriented. They're, they're not always going to be positive. And, and, and a lot of the, the context that's going on within these stressful events, like if you're thinking back about, you know, beginning of covid, you weren't all roses and sunshine with your partner, I'm sure. Right. Most people had to have some sort of interactions where there was there was a lot of stress uh, and you may have been critical towards your partner or you may have withdrawn from them. And those are types of negative coping negative dyadic coping that can be really impactful if it's drawn out across this time periods. Right. And used more frequently. Right. Um, yeah.
1: 100%. And I will say that, like, you know, providing this empathy. Right. So it's, it's not as simple as just saying, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. Like, that must suck. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's really allowing the partner who's experiencing the stress, and in this case, really it was both partners, but really allowing or setting the stage for both partners to really, how we conceptualize is really like diving deep um, as to why it is that that experience of stress is so salient for them. So for example, right? Like if someone had, you know, was laid off for a couple of weeks, um, one negative response could be like, what's the issue? Now you don't have to go to work. How, you know, must be nice. You have two weeks at home, whatever it may be. Alternatively, though, is really asking the partner, you know, I recognize that this is stressful for you. What about this is stressful? And we may go from I'm not working for two weeks to my like core as an individual is to be able to provide for my family or to at least contribute to the family. And this is really upsetting to me. And this is why, you know, this is mm-hmm. bothersome. Mm-hmm. And and it's not that a solution can be found, but rather sharing and creating and cultivating, you know, that joint understanding really increases Trust and um, you know admiration for one's
2: mm-hmm. partner. I think another key point too regarding how we measured positive dyadic coping, we measured perceptions of dyadic coping in one's partner, right? So I think that's a key point as well. So if I perceived my romantic partner as engaging in positive dyadic coping, that's what helped to buffer against my stress, right? So even if my partner thought they were engaging in positive dyadic coping, but I wasn't perceiving that as such, right? I wasn't receiving that on my end um, then I wouldn't experience that same benefit uh, buffering and stress. So again, this is where, you know, intentions and perceptions likely need to match, right? You need to be, there needs to be an in phase, like synchrony between couples, uh, in order for these dynamics to play out in ways that are adaptive and beneficial for the long-term health of the relationship.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point too, uh, Gabe is, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of work on invisibility of support. And, and I think that that kind of yeah. uh, meets it really well in the sense that, you know, there's there's times where providing support invisibly can help people uh, and, you know, can, can save them from either feeling like they can't manage the stress on their own uh, or you know, maybe it affects their self-esteem or self-efficacy if their partner always helps them whenever they don't really feel like they need it. Uh, but, you know, the the individual that's receiving the support, you know experiencing or feeling that your partner's supporting you might be really really apparent according to your findings has an, a significant impact on how how your well-being is impacted right? So if you feel your partner's doing good things for you, it's probably a good sign. Uh, if you feel like your partner's not doing good things for you, you're probably going to be in a worse spot. Uh, regardless of whether or not your partner thinks they're doing good stuff for you. Right. Uh, And so that's kind of an interesting kind of line of work, a little tangential, I'll admit. Um, But I think that the work that you guys did across these countries, is just, it's just insane how, how you guys did this. Uh, And I'm really curious um, how, or what kind of differences you guys found uh, or the team found when it came to countries. So, so, we now know from what you said, Gabe, is is you know it's a, there's a buffering effect, and and when it comes to support and coping, that buffering effect for anybody that's unfamiliar with it is when you're having a lot of stress, um, receiving positive coping, positive dyadic coping, or positive support will bring it down and make things better. But if you're not experiencing stress at all, that support's not really going to do much, right? And that's kind of the buffering effect is that when in times of high stress, so during COVID. Um, that's where support really is the most important and it's having the biggest impact. It's buffering that, that significant amount of stress. Um, So I think that's really cool. And that's something that we've seen in a lot of support literature and coping literature is that this buffering effect. So it's cool to see that that's being going on during COVID. Um, Are we seeing that across all countries? Is that like a a unanimous thing that it's just, it's just good and it's always going to buffer? Yeah.
2: So this is something, I mean, I don't want to, I want to contextualize that our study is one study right so though we had over fourteen thousand participants i think it's hard to generalize from any one study and this goes just kind of general rule for ingesting science right um is always be critical and always understand that you know there's idiosyncrasies to the people that we were fortunate enough to survey uh that may not play out for everyone right so regarding the buffering effect that you talked about we actually did find that it was in most countries right so there was only a handful of countries a couple of those being Bangladesh, Canada, Chile, Spain, and Malaysia, we actually found that that effect wasn't there. Um, and it's not that, like I said, it, it's not that we could confirm that it's not there, right? But there was just a lot of variability in our data, and we weren't able to confirm that that effect was there. But in all other countries, to varying degrees of strength, that buffering effect was there. And this is important, too, thinking about it cross-culturally, because it goes to show that even though positive diet and coping may be expressed differently in different countries, There is this commonality and universality to when I'm perceiving that I'm in a relationship and that my partner is invested, right? They're invested in helping me deal with life. And the different ups and downs or even big, like big obstacles, such as the pandemic itself. Uh, When I feel like my partner's there for me, it helps me to um, handle my stress. And my stress doesn't affect my relationships as much. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the cross-cultural findings. Was there uh, anything else, Ashley, that you wanted to underscore?
1: Yeah. Um, excellent job given. I I think that some of the countries where we really saw a lot of like robust effects um, in particular, were like Greece, Hungary, Mm -hmm. um, in Italy. Right. And if we think about on a, on a very broad level, right. And, um, if, if even we were going to go to like collectivistic and individualistic countries, which I I personally, I think it's uh, a little bit too broad of a understanding of how it is that we relate to one another. Although in that context, thinking about one, not only um, the larger cultural context of really being um, collectivistic and and close family knit, and it's quite hard in that conceptualization to separate the individual from the system. Um, So that's on one end of the the idea. The other idea is that these were countries in particular that were having high rates of COVID transmission. Um, Italy in particular, right? I mean, this is kind of where the, um, apart from China, this is really where the epicenter started um, in Europe. And then looking at where we were um, you know, in terms of the COVID pandemic and, and really the widespread transmission of the virus, some of these countries were not experiencing these levels of distress and or it was anticipatory. Now, the interesting thing uh, that came up actually with the data from Canada was that we actually saw, and Gabe, correct me if I'm, I'm misremembering this, is that the, the pre-levels of distress were, were actually unbelievably low, um, to which I, I actually uh, joked with my, my colleague, Dr. Susan Boone and, and her collaborators, where I'm like, oh, yet another example why those of us from the US should move to Canada. Um, <laughs> and don't worry, we checked for missingness, and skewness and all that, so uh, yeah. It's quite interesting to, to look
2: at that <laughs> we're just happy yeah canada was an outlier it was really it was really interesting because we had to double check it a couple times there was an email chain of like wait is there an error do we, we had to like double and triple check um
0: we were not happier. yeah well i was like
2: man there's well again it was the difference right so right. i think it was it's not so much the post-covid 19 stress was very high but it was the pre-co like they just so low
0: yeah oh, the response like- said nope we weren't stressed beforehand
1: yeah it's like life's great <laughs>
0: I don't know what was going on early twenty twenty for all these Canadians, but that's great <laughs> to hear that we we're all very, very low stress. Uh, that is it's, it's interesting too, and I think like I'm thinking of you, you, the team doing this with twenty seven countries, and, and and thinking about we always trying to think of okay, well, what are the other variables that are at play here that are predicting these differences in countries. And, and and outbreaks is a great example because I remember Italy was you know they were one of the highest outbreaks early on, um, and then you got to con- kind of consider okay well what was my country like during this time what was the outbreak situation what was the daily experience like and being able to really have like that mindset across twenty seven countries when you're make making these comparisons can be really tough.
1: Absolutely, and I and I would say that there's you know with any I, I would say with any research. You know, there's always questions where retrospectively one, one says, like, mm, this would probably have been a good question to ask or to assess. And so recognizing the context to which we were collecting the data is understanding individuals, um, you know, like their well-being at that time point. And in particular, I'm talking about, um, you know, did they have a number of pre-existing health concerns? And that's at the individual level. And then relationally, yeah. it's like how many people potentially are we taking care of? At the community level, what are the resources that we have access to? What's the healthcare system like? Um, you know, what are the preventative measures that are being taken? And, and so, these are all things that we, um, at least, and um, you know, for some light reading, there is a supplemental file, which is probably I don't know, twenty something pages, um, but there there is some additional information in terms of what were the dates of outbreak and and um, such for the, for the countries that are represented.
0: Oh, that's really cool. I was I was really curious if you guys would have included that. And that's that's something that w- would be perfect for the paper. Obviously, you can't include all of this information in a paper. It would just, even for an academic paper, it might get a little long. Um, one thing that I'm kind of curious, I, I want to kind of get a little speculation period between the two of you. Yeah. What were the best couples doing uh, to come out of this kind of COVID situation better off than they were before? I know a lot of couples uh, cease to exist over this period, um, to say the least. And I'm sure that that's still something that's kind of, you know, still percolating with the, the stress that's going on across the world. Still, what do you think the best couples are doing that, to stay together and be stronger?
1: Um, you know, that that's a really good question. And, and I would say really just, I mean, and this is based on, you know, my own like anecdotal evidence is that the couples who have a really good foundation in terms of, Um, shared interests and shared understanding and shared relational goals. I think that this time really allowed uh, couples and families, right? So um, broadly defined to really reevaluate what are the, what are the things that are important to us? And likely some of this downtime while stressful in, in some respect, really allowed the couples to flourish in terms of having these conversations, maybe reassessing, like, here are things like you had mentioned plants, Like that's great. Um, I cannot keep a plant alive. I mean, thankfully we have cacti in Arizona. So those need water <laughs> once every six months. So that's good. Um, although, you know, thinking about like what brings us joy, like wh- what are the things that we would like to rediscover or learn? Um, I know like we tried to do puzzles. Thankfully, our cat like stopped that real quick. So we didn't have to participate in the 10,000 piece puzzle. But, um, you know, just things that I I would say really allowed couples to invigorate and relearn what they really fell in love with Mm -hmm. um, that really made the relationship work. And then certainly those that did not have a good stable base of communication or already had, you know, some level of annoyances. Yeah, those were certainly exacerbated. Mm -hmm. Gabe, what what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great point. Um, One of the concepts that I like to employ, I mean, we hear these truisms, right, about what makes a relationship work. It takes communication, it takes this or that. Uh, But one of the things that I think is really robust is there's a researcher named Ed Tronick who studied um, development between the relationship of infants and mothers, right, and how attachment happens. And one of the things that he coined was rupture and repair. It's very essential to relationships, right? So what does that mean? Inevitably, in the close relationship, especially when a pandemic and you're crammed into you know whatever situation, whatever household that you're in, uh, you're in close proximity to loved ones, there's going to be friction, right? There's going to be conflict, but that's not the determinant of the relationship, right? The determinant of the relationship quality is how do you respond to that, right? How do you repair any ruptures that may come up, any conflicts, any friction? If you can do that, all of a sudden now those, con- those conflicts are now contextualized, right? Within this repair, this, re- this healing process. And that's what builds a strong relationship, right? I think there's literature to support that. And it gets to, like, we talk about positive, at coping. You can have a fight with your partner, right? But if you communicate, right, if you listen, if you engage active listening and empathy, after that, that, you may perceive that as a positive experience, right? Maybe you thought it went well. We actually resolved something. Um, so that's, I think, something that I'd want to highlight and underscore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like a, an investment, like you're showing that you're investing by thinking back and how you can improve and yeah. repair on things that didn't go right. Uh, and especially whenever you're talking about these major life stressors, we all share this one major life stressor now. Um, if we had a functioning, I think the one or two year olds might get a pass on this one just because, you know, they may not have been fully aware of what's going on. They just got a little more mommy daddy time. But I think everybody else, you know, they, we all experience it in different ways. And I'm so curious Going forward to see what you know, Ashley, your lab and and Gay, whatever you do, how this might impact future research? Because you know, I always think, and I talk with a lot of friends about how each generation and and just small variations in ages may have experienced very unique experiences during COVID. Right? You know, you have these young elementary school kids that just got used to hanging out with their new friends that now didn't get to do that for two years. Or you get these high school students that didn't get the university experience that everybody else did when they got to, you know, the first year of undergrad. And then you have people that are working in, in the workforce that got laid off when they should have been making money and they were excited about it. And all these other things with, with you know, having young kids and, and elderly individuals in the family that you have to look after that you can't see in, their, in the, the older uh, retirement homes and things like that. So many different perspectives, so many different experiences. And I think that, Uh, The work that you did with 27 countries and 14,000 participants is the kind of research that we need to be doing um, going forward and just, you know, thinking about how we can be better within our relationships. And I think it was just so cool to hear from both of you and get that perspective today. So thanks again for coming on.
1: No, thank you. And and a huge thank you. I'd I'd be remiss if um, we didn't thank all of our amazing collaborators um, who participated. And most importantly, thanks to the research participants who shared their a window into their lives uh, for a momentary period of time. And um, we certainly appreciate and of course, wish them all the best.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish we had enough time to list all the co-authors on this, but my Lord, we'd be here for a little while. So many people contributing to this. Uh, I will I will link uh, this paper if anybody's interested. It's a it's a really intense, like it's an awesome paper. There's just so many layers to it. So there's so much to go through. We just scratched the surface today. Um, but again, thank you so much, Ash- Ashley and Gabe. This was really fun to have you guys on and yeah, keep on doing the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Awesome. All right. Uh, and with that, I will call it an episode. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, send us a like on, I believe you can only really do that on Apple podcast anymore. Uh, but do follow us on Spotify so you can be updated anytime we have a new episode. We are trying to do it every two weeks. Uh, Kyle might be t- returning for an episode soon. Uh, I have had a very hectic move and a lot of things going on with me, so I've been a little bit slow to to get these out, so I'm sorry if you've been waiting. I, I appreciate you. But there will be more regular episodes coming out soon, I promise. Thanks so much. Have an amazing day. Cheers.